is the K-Stop Welcome back to another episode of the Case Star Report. My name is Connor Agara and I'm the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Lead for the podcast. Following on from our previous episode on neck of femur fractures, I have the pleasure today of talking to Dr. Deirdre Breslin, who's a consultant in emergency medicine at the Matter Hospital with a special interest in geriatric emergency medicine and also is a TCR alumnus. So let's get cracking. So hi guys, welcome back to the next episode of the Case Dot Report. I'm Connor Agar, and I'm here with Dr. Deirdre Breslin, who's a consultant in emergency medicine in the Matter Hospital with a special interest in geriatric emergency medicine, as well as a TCR alumnus. So thank you very much, Dr. Breslin, for joining us. Oh, please call me Deirdre. Thanks, Connor, for having me. It's great to be back with the team. <laughs> Sounds good, Deirdre. Welcome back. Good to have you. So look, I suppose for anyone who's new this series, will you just, I suppose, run us through a bit about your own background just to get us all up to speed? From my own background, obviously, I trained in emergency medicine through the Irish training scheme and then went on to do a fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine which is a kind of special interest area of mine. During my training I worked with the team as the TEC or production lead for GEM. So I, I was involved for a couple of seasons and we, we ran a couple of episodes on geriatric emergency medicine special interest topics and we also did a collaborative series with USUM. So I know a little bit about what it's like to be on the other side of this table but uh, happy to be back here and, and hopefully talk a little bit about some kind of pearls of, of advice and wisdom that might be useful for uh, anyone with a specialist interest in this area. Um, so I suppose just going back, like during your training, at what point did you kind of find that you were angling or directing yourself towards geriatric emergency medicine as a special interest or how did that as was develop? It's an interesting one and it's sort of one that snuck up on me, if I'm honest. I think just due to a couple of, you know, family circumstances, it was something that I'd always had a bit of a personal interest in and something that was always there in the back of my mind as I was training. That's not to say it was the only thing I was interested in. So I think like a lot of emergency physicians get a little bit excitable and have interests in lots of different areas. So uh, I love GEM, I love simulation teaching. I thought I might do ICU for a while. It was only towards the end of my SBR training that it kind of became the forerunner for me. And that was due to some just really good experiences I had in a couple of departments where I saw the benefit of really good GEM care and also some opportunities presenting themselves in terms of, you know, fellowship opportunities. And, and you know, at the point where I took on the GEM production lead for TCR, it was really just starting to crystallize as, as something that I was particularly aiming towards at that stage and involvement in the podcast actually really helped to solidify that for me. So the kind of the more I thought about it, the more I got into it and the more I got into it, the more I learned about it. And I still really strongly feel that it's an area where we can have enormous benefit and an area that there's still so much we can do to improve care for this cohort. So yeah, it's still something I'm really, really excited about being involved in. And then I suppose when you applied for the fellowship, got involved with that, how did that process happen? And then I suppose when you were doing it, what, what was your day-to-day -day job like? What, what did it involve? 
in terms of people listening, I, you know, obviously we've got a, a spectrum of listeners, but some people might be thinking that a fellowship is something that they want to do. So to speak kind of generally to that, rather than even specifically about Gem, there's different ways to do your fellowship if you want to do one. You can do one obviously overseas, which I can't personally speak to, but there's loads of centers of excellence around the world where people from emergency medicine in Ireland have traveled. So great opportunities in the UK and Australia. From a Gem perspective, Leicester in the UK has been a fantastic site that some of our very esteemed colleagues have gone through over the years to, to gain subspecialty interest training in Gem. I chose the Irish route. If you are thinking of fellowship in Ireland, there's different ways that you can go about getting one of those funded. Probably the most clear route that comes around every year, there are three Aspire fellowships in emergency medicine awarded every year. So that's what my fellowship came up through. So Aspire is a national program and they do fellowships in different specialties in medicine. So each specialty gets a couple of allocated fellowships and they change every year. So every year departments can put forward a proposed fellowship for Aspire funding. For example, this year, I believe the fellowships that are being awarded are going to be in well-being and cardiology in St. James's Hospital. And we've got one in the matter that's going to be kind of trauma ultrasound focused. So every year you might find something different is coming up from an Aspire perspective. I was just very fortunate that my year when I was coming out, it happened to be a geriatric emergency medicine fellowship. So one of those kind of stars aligning moments, which was great. I think if you are thinking that it's something you might want to do, and if you have a department in mind that you would like to do your fellowship in, it's really useful to start talking to that department during your SPOR. Make sure they know you're interested and you can kind of have a little bit of input into what a fellowship might look like or what you might be um, interested in doing during your fellowship year to really maximize the benefit of it. In terms of my day to day then in the fellowship year, I was really lucky. I had just phenomenal supervision from Dr. Vinnie Ramia, who's now a consultant colleague of mine in the emergency department, but also I had a consultant geriatrician supervisor in Colin Byrne. So for my fellowship, I fell between those two departments. I'm really grateful to both of my supervisors for the opportunities that it set up. Day to day, it looked like time in the department working with our front door frailty team, our, our fit team. I did some time every week in our silver trauma review clinic, which is a little bit unique to the matter. And then I was lucky to have opportunities to rotate through different geriatric subspecialty areas. So I got some time in the community working with the integrated care team. I got to spend some time in our rehab units, uh, some time in psychiatry of old age, in the movement disorder clinic, all these really um, focused areas that gave me a much better uh, kind of understanding and knowledge of the system and how it works and how different things interact and, and come together. Um, but also obviously helped me to develop my clinical skills a little bit. What was great about my fellowship and about a lot of fellowships is you have a huge amount of time to do some sort of self-directed learning and non-clinical time. So if you're thinking of doing a fellowship, I think it's a great opportunity to work on maybe parts of your CV that you haven't really had an opportunity to think about before, but also to really focus on research or funding proposals or quality improvement that excites you. And also there's phenomenal opportunities to get involved in things from kind of a management level. So I'm a big advocate for fellowships whatever your subspecialty area of interest might be, I think there's a lot to be gained from them. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And I suppose duration-wise, most fellowships in Ireland would be 12 months. Is that right? Or can that vary? Or is that a fairly... So I'm not an expert on the paediatric fellowship, but my understanding is that that's an 18-month deal if you're looking to do kind of a paediatric emergency medicine qualification. But again, you might need to get onto the PEM guys about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they have it lined up. The other exception to that rule is if you're interested in ICU, the joint 
College Faculty of ICU uh, Fellowship offers a two-year program so you can get kind of dual qualified in that perspective. The Aspire programs that I've been talking about are generally awarded as one-year fellowship but you know there are there are variations and there are different routes so you know lots lots of options and lots of things out there for people. Okay it seems great kind of just from the way you're describing it there does seem to be an element of you can kind of craft it into experience I suppose you you want it to be to a degree. It isn't like a set program per se that you work through would that be fairly Yeah I suppose uh, you know fellowships vary so some of them are more rigid and some of them are more set and I think it's important to enter into it with your eyes open you know if it's rigid and set that's okay as long as you know that's what you're getting yourself into. I was just very fortunate with mine that I I had quite a bit of input and obviously you know Dr. Rami and Dr. Byrne had a, a strong idea for what they wanted the fellowship to look like as well so it was quite collaborative we met up regularly to make sure that that I was meeting the expectations of of what they wanted their fellow to achieve but also you know for me I felt I had good kind of control and good cooperation in terms of being able to guide things a little bit as well. So really great experience. So I suppose then just moving on from that, in terms of the transition you've gone through recently from HD to consultant practice, I suppose, how have you found that transition? And how have you found that doing a fellowship has helped with that or benefited it now in your practice as a consultant? Obviously, I'm still brand new in this role. So lots and lots and lots still to learn. I think for me personally, came out of the SVR scheme, I'd obviously completed my mandatory requirements and completed the, the training program per se, but I still needed a bit of time to really solidify what my goals were in terms of a consultant job and what I wanted to bring to a department and really what my signature strengths were going to be. So the fellowship really gave me a lot of time to clear that up in my mind and even to start on some projects that I've been fortunate to be able to continue. So I think it's great in that it gives you that head start to hit the ground running a little bit more, if that makes sense. You know, with my particular situation. And I also, I'm very lucky that I managed to continue working in the department where I did my fellowship. So I've got a good understanding of how the system works here. I know a lot of the people here. So in terms of day-to-day working, that certainly makes life a lot easier. You know, when you want to make change as a consultant, or even when you're just kind of settling into a department, it certainly, um, I think, makes it easier that I've that I've got those relationships built up a little bit. Whenever you start your consultant job, fellowship or not, it's going to be a huge learning process. It's a very different job from being an NCHD. Those benefits that I found from a fellowship, you know, it's not to say that a fellowship is is necessary or that I feel it's compulsory for everyone, because I do think that they are things that you can learn on the job and you can learn as you go along. But for me personally, I was happy to just have that little bit of space and that little bit of time to kind of just make things clear in my own head. So I felt much more prepared starting this job two months ago when I did start versus where I think I would have felt about a year ago, if that makes sense. I suppose then just to pivot a little bit in terms of GEM specific interventions that we can make in the emergency department, you mentioned a couple of things there that you guys have in the matter, like the fit team and the silver trauma review clinic. I guess the review clinic, I think you spoke about that at IAM last year. Was just how does that work? Or if you could just run us through it, that'd be great. 100%. Yeah. So the review clinic is the work of, again, Dr. Vinny Rami and Dr. Colin Byrne, who set it up along with support from uh, colleagues in other specialties. So the way it works essentially is it provides us with opportunity to review older patients who are discharged from the emergency department following a trauma. So those that have maybe an injury that doesn't require surgery, but might require an element of follow-up. So for example, the review clinic, we'd look after patients with a distal radius fracture or maybe a vertebral compression fracture, or even just soft tissue injuries that they've sustained during during a trauma. So yeah, I was really fortunate to get to work in it during the year. When you're in the clinic yourself, then the clinic has a consultant in emergency medicine, a consultant geriatrician, 
Uh, we're really fortunate to have an excellent physiotherapist working in the clinic also, and then an advanced nurse practitioner. So the idea is that each patient gets a pretty comprehensive review, not just of their injury and how that's progressing and how they're managing in terms of pain, how their sleep is, how their function is going from an injury perspective. We also take the opportunity to do a little bit more of an in-depth review of, well, you know, do they need bone protection? Do they need a DEXA scan? Is there an element of like orthostatic hypotension that has contributed to a fall? You know, we do an ECG, these sorts of things that, you know, you'd like to think would be picked up on their index presentation in the emergency department. But, you know, we fully appreciate that with the constraints of an ED assessment, not all these things will be identified. So it's just a great opportunity to really check the patient is managing to, you know, develop pathways for them if they are not managing and link them in with appropriate services, but also to do a little bit more of a global comprehensive uh, geriatric assessment. And the outcomes from it have been great. So we published on this last year. And again, I, I did talk about it at IEM, but it's amazing what we pick up when we review these patients, you know, two weeks or even less after their index ED presentation. So a significant number of them have injuries that weren't initially identified. Quite a lot of them have orthostatic hypotension and might need a medication uh, review. We do a lot of DEXA scanning and we put about you know, 50% of these patients on a new medication for osteoporosis or, or we change their medications in some way. So it's just fantastic to have the opportunity and the time to do that. While most people are discharged to their GP, there is a small minority that at that point just aren't managing and might need link back in with the community intervention team or the integrated care team or, you know, an even smaller percent might need to be admitted to a rehab unit at that stage. So just having those kind of links um, set up just makes for a kind of, I think, a better recovery for these patients. It was just fantastic to work in that for the year. And, and it's a really um, a credit to Dr. Rami and Dr. Byrne that it's been such a success. How long has it been running for, did you say? Or? Uh, it started in 2021, I believe, May 2021. So it'll be about three years now in May. Okay, brilliant. And I think you were saying it's about two weeks or so after the index presentation when people get seen or? We can really fit people in, you know, that very week if necessary. But generally what we find is that a week to two weeks just gives people an idea of how they're managing at home. And we're very receptive to kind of getting people in sooner to be assessed if necessary. One of the particular injuries that I think, you know, the clinic does very well in as well, just to, to highlight is management of vertebral compression fractures. So an injury that I don't think I appreciated the full magnitude of before doing this job. So we see quite a lot of these in older adults, you know, these osteoporotic compression fractures or compression fractures after a minor trauma. And I think uh, it was something that I dismissed a little bit when I, you know, used to be a registrar or an SBO or kind of thinking bit of pain relief and they'll be fine. But it's amazing how, how much these patients have ongoing pain issues. There's a dedicated pathway to get these patients an early MRI and on the same day as their MRI, if required, they can have a vertebroplasty procedure performed, which is fantastic. You know, it, and it really does seem to have significant impacts in terms of pain management and function and return to baseline. So just one example of a particular injury that I think, you know, is managed well in the clinic, you know. And do you guys bring all your silver traumas back to that or what's your kind of criteria? How do you pick people to bring back to clinic or? Uh, yeah, so the criteria for this are, are quite broad. So we do suggest uh, that patients should have a degree of frailty. So, you know, if we go by the clinical frailty score, hopefully you might be familiar with patients who have a, a CFS of one or two and, and are not living with frailty, probably don't get maximum benefit from the clinic. So they can be assessed in the, you know, fracture clinic or, or during normal routes. And if they do 
need to be linked back in, we can reassess that. But similar to a CGA, I suppose the patients that we feel probably maximally benefit from this are the pre-frail or the frail adults. So I suppose, yeah, that just brings us on then to looking at frailty and DED in general. Maybe it's something we don't necessarily think about enough in terms of identifying frail patients, I guess, from your view, how important do you think it is to identify frailty when it's there? And I guess, what can we do to manage it? It's something that we are getting better and better at all the time. There's been massive changes in terms of, you know, the growth and evolution of front door frailty teams. And even I think the discussion around frailty in the emergency department in the last few years. So, you know, you talked about IEM. There was enormous amounts of conversations about geriatric emergency medicine at IEM this year, which is great, which is, you know, it it was really the standout for me, how much we were talking about this and considering this and right at the center of a lot of the discussions. So in terms of that, I, I do think there has been progress made for sure. And we're lucky to have some really fantastic, engaged healthcare professionals, you know, obviously not just doctors, but, you know, amazing occupational therapists, physiotherapists, advanced nurse practitioners, for example, working in departments all around the country, conducting brilliant research in this area and really pushing things forward. Well, I think your your question was how important it is. I think it's massively important that we can identify this at a really, really early point. So, you know, when you think about older adults uh, living with frailty, they just have a much higher risk of adverse health outcomes, can present with more nonspecific complaints. They can be difficult to manage very well, I suppose. So that really early identification of a patient who has a frailty syndrome or a higher CFS allows for a much better assessment of that patient and can really allow us to Target the kind of five M's of geriatrics, which you, you might be more familiar with. So make sure that we're not just thinking about their presenting complaint as described in their triage note, but are we thinking about their mobility and their mood and what matters most to that patient? And I think when you bring all of these things together, not only does it, I think, improve care for that cohort, but it also makes sure it is more patient centered care and that the goals we are setting and the treatments and investigations we are doing for that patient are, are more appropriate. Yeah, like we're, we're fortunate to screen for frailty in our department, which then triggers the front door frailty team, our fit team to come in and, and provide a really great service in terms of a comprehensive geriatric assessment. And I know that similar systems with some minor variations are being done around the country, the results of which are, are really encouraging in terms of the improvements and the benefits that they've had for our older adults in Ireland. Okay, and how does the FIT team, just as an example, function in the matter? And as I said, like everyone has their own kind of differences. So so all teams are a little bit different for us. We have a consultant geriatrician-led service. We're fortunate to have a consultant geriatrician in the department every day, you know, reviewing patients with the team, along with what I believe is the largest front door for LT team in Ireland. So we have occupational therapy, we have physiotherapy, speech and language, dietitian, we have a pharmacist, social work. So a really great comprehensive team. In terms of the practical stuff. So we screen for frailty at triage. Our triage nurses kindly perform a VIP score, which is just one way of identifying frailty at triage. And patients who screen positive on that are flagged for the FIT team to review. Currently, they're running a, a Monday to Friday service and they'll 
see uh, nearly every adult that is, is screened as frailty positive during that time. They also do a frailty review clinic. So patients who are presenting out of hours, who don't need to stay in the hospital, but who have kind of concerns from a frailty perspective can be referred into that clinic maybe the next day for the team to perform a comprehensive geriatric assessment on at that stage. So yeah, basically once the team get involved, one of the members of our FIT team will see that patient and kind of be the lead team member for that person, do the initial assessment of them and identify other team members who might need to be involved. So if there's a swallowing issue or a speech issue, they'll get SLT involved. If there's a need to kind of review home care packages, obviously social work will get involved. And brilliant, a really collaborative team. They huddle a couple of times a day to discuss all the patients and and make sure there's a clear plan for them. And they see patients at the same time as the emergency department physicians. So it all works pretty efficiently and very collaboratively. We're, We're really fortunate to have a great team around us. Okay, that's brilliant. It's fantastic. I suppose then I'm just thinking in terms of something that's broadly applicable around the country, say if you're an NCHD or EM trainee in a department, maybe with less resources available, just within the time constraints of an EM review of a patient, if you're seeing someone score highly on a CFS, you're concerned about them from a frailty point of view, as was in the absence of having a specialist team there, what can you do in that review to try and combat and manage their frailty or what would be your your thoughts on that? Oh, I think there's so many things that we can do. Um, And I think that things... So many little things can have a massive positive impact. So I'm a huge believer in the importance of non-pharmacological interventions and the importance of environment. So really, really simple things like checking the lighting in the cubicle, checking that the patient could be orientated, you know, making sure that they're staying hydrated, that they're having food, that they have a means of communication. So just checking, do they use hearing aids or do they use glasses and do they have those things? All of these things are massively going to improve the whole experience for your older adults in the emergency department. In terms of those who are frail, really, I think one of the most important things we can do is quantify that degree of frailty. So uh, a clinical frailty scale, if you're not familiar with it, is a really, really useful tool to just put a kind of hard numerical number on frailty and put a language on it that can be easily communicated between team members. And if you're referring to a specialty, it's a number that kind of will make sense hopefully to that specialty. So if I say someone has a CFS of five to a a medically admitted team, hopefully they can understand what I mean by that. And it gives them a picture of that person in their mind. You know, it also helps to kind of to clear in your mind what the goals of care might be. So someone who has a CFS of nine with a very limited life expectancy, you may not do the same interventions for that person as you would for someone with a CFS of one, if that makes sense. So I think, yeah, like Quantifying the frailty, using language to communicate that frailty and anticipating a kind of trajectory and a prognosis for a patient can be really useful. Uh, And those non-pharmacological interventions, simple things really, really do make a huge difference. Okay, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I guess just goes to show we really should be thinking about frailty and quantifying a CFS for all of our older patients and we'll just be able to identify these issues at an early stage, I guess, and stop them from progressing. 100%. 100%. And they're like, yeah. uh, as always, there's an app for that. So, you know, if you can get a, a CFS app on your phone where you run through a few quick questions, it, it pops out a number for you. If you're kind of getting to grips with it or, or trying to get to understand what it means, Onya Mitchell and Sligo has a great way of breaking the CFS up into three sections that uh, I'm sure she'll tell to anyone who <laughs> wants to hear about it. But we don't need to overcomplicate it or, or make this uh, unnecessarily fussy. You can keep it pretty simple in your mind, but just getting a number in your head and using that to communicate frailty and getting it documented in the notes, I think is really useful. Cool. I guess then finally, if you're, this was like myself, if you're an EM trainee, think you might have an interest in GEM from an early stage. Any any tips for how to progress and develop that interest as as you did? There's loads and loads of ways to develop it, I think. So 
USAM and IFEM both have great uh, geriatric emergency medicine kind of special interest groups that, you, you know, are always looking for interested uh, people to, to get involved. And they have research sections and education sections. You know, for example, just recently, I'd say quite a lot of people in Ireland might be familiar with the feed study that was conducted. So uh, a lot of sites in Ireland got involved in that, which was a, a European study looking at frailty in the emergency departments and gathering data on that. You know, that's just one example of a way to get involved and research in, in GEM. Similarly, they uh, run education workshops uh, and online events that you can participate in from a learning perspective and then maybe get involved in teaching in as well. You know, once you kind of gain a little bit of experience or interest in the area. If you have a frailty team in your emergency department, they are a phenomenal resource. So get to spend a little bit of time with them if you can, because they're a great team for, you know, explaining how the comprehensive geriatric assessment works. Also for explaining how the system works for older patients and how they can, you know, navigate the system to maximal effect for the patient. So there's amazing learning to be gained from liaising with those team members and then talk to people who have an interest in the area already. So there's quite a lot of consultants now around the country who have a kind of designated interest in geriatric emergency medicine. Most hospitals We'll have someone who's kind of taken a leading interest in that. So have a chat with them, get involved in projects, get involved in audit in GEM and keep listening to TCR. Well, look, thanks very much for your, your wise words and insights into the world of GEM there. All the best and it's great to have you back again someday in the future. And that is that for another episode of the Case Dot Report. Thanks very much to our guest, Dr. Deirdre Breslin, for such an interesting conversation. And thank you all for tuning in. Make sure to get in touch and let us know uh, your opinions and anything you've heard today. You can find us on Twitter at The Case Report to join in the discussion. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, make sure to give us a rating or a review, as it'll help uh, new people to find the podcast. Until next time, as always, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.